0: Thanks to the resurgence and popularity of the paranormal in the last couple years, the name Velisca requires little explanation. This notorious mass murder from 1912 Iowa has leapt into the public consciousness thanks to many a ghost hunting trip to the Velisca Axe Murder House. But there's another side to Veliska, a side far from unknown, but still little discussed in the mainstream. For Veliska may not have been this killer's first. Not at all. And it may not have been his last. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is Death Rides the Rails. Like most other people into the paranormal and odd, I had always known the story of Velisca for years, although I was mostly familiar with the details of the murders themselves. I I knew that there was a string of analogous crimes leading up to and possibly after Velisca, but it wasn't until I began researching the story in earnest that I found out just how large and well-documented a story it really was. It was quite a lot larger than I initially realized. And I think it's likely better to be best served by a multi-part episode. I'm not certain yet on exactly how long it'll be, but I'm thinking maybe three, maybe four parts. I don't know. Likely one on the initial string, which is this episode. One on Velisca itself, both the murders and the aftermath, because that story is large enough for its own episode. I think. And one on the maybes. Some of the other murders that are probably committed by the same individual, but not known to be for sure. Not all the potential ones could have been committed by him. There's far too many for that, I think. They're ones, I think, that are most likely. Obviously, I want to do something on the more prominent suspects and general theories as well, but that might end up getting bundled in with another part. On Wednesday, September 20th, 1911, at around 1.30 in the afternoon, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Ms. Nettie Ruth, sister of May Alice Burnham, had gone to visit her sibling. She and May were engaged seamstresses and they had some sewing projects to complete. Arriving at the house, she found that, oddly, all the blinds were drawn on the windows. Trying to enter through the back door, she found it locked. She went down the street to the home of Anna Merritt, another friend of May's, thinking that perhaps she had locked up the house and gone over there. But Anna told her that, no, she hadn't seen May at all since Sunday. When asked about how the house appeared... Anna said that she had gone by the home on Monday, and it didn't seem like anyone was home then either. Anna and Nettie both set out for the Burnham home, eventually gaining entry through the back door. As soon as they stepped into the kitchen, they noticed a horrible smell. The door between the kitchen and the front room was ajar. Calling out and receiving no response, Nettie and Anna walked to the door and cautiously peered through. A moment later, they ran from the house aghast. The front room, where the Burnhams had their beds set up, was spattered with blood. Lying on the bed were the bodies of May Burnham and her children, seven-year-old Nellie, sometimes reported as Alice, and two-year-old John. In an odd detail, they said that a parrot was perched on the bedpost. Summoning the police, the investigation of the Burnham murder scene began. Not much information about the crime scene itself exists, but what we do know is that the bodies of May and John lay as if they had been killed in their sleep. Loose clothing was piled over their faces. That of daughter Nellie, on the other hand, lay across the bed as if she had been trying to climb over her mother's body when killed. Both children were in their underwear, and all three bodies were covered with bed sheets. A bottle of either ink or shoe polish, according to some Sources near a window had been knocked over, possibly as the killer was making either his entrance or his exit. Fingerprints had been retrieved from near the ink stain, as well as from several other items around the home. In fact, several days later, Mrs. Burnham was to be exhumed in order to determine whether the prints belonged to her or to the killer and, quote, to determine whether Mrs. Burnham clutched the clothing of the murderer or other objects now in the possession of the authorities. As well, it was thought that, quote, the murderer tried to set fire to the Burnham home with a view to destroying the bodies of the three victims. Later, a newspaper photographer claimed that he had used too much flash powder in his camera and set a curtain on fire. A clue that will be revisited is a statement by a detective on the scene that the crime had been committed by what he termed a moral pervert. What exactly he meant isn't known, but examination of the other crimes might give a clue. A wash tub was retrieved that had some ink stains on it, and was to be examined for fingerprints, the assumption being that the killer had touched it. Some reports indicate he had used this tub to wash his hands of the blood which undoubtedly covered him. The father was 40-year-old Arthur Burnham, who didn't actually live with the rest of his family, But was a resident of the modern Woodman Sanatorium, a tuberculosis hospital. Burnham, a former resident of Michigan, had moved to Colorado Springs to seek treatment for tuberculosis. But as the disease was in remission, he was employed in the kitchens there. He had been at home Sunday evening, but he had returned to the sanatorium. He was soon picked up for questioning by the police. In the meantime, a neighbor, Mrs. F. E. Campbell, mentioned to the police that the neighboring home, that of 24-year-old Francis H. Wayne, his 22-year-old wife Blanche, and their two-year-old daughter Lula had also had its blinds drawn and appeared deserted. The father's first name is usually reported in the news accounts as Henry F., but records back in his hometown of Meaderyville, Indiana list his actual name as Francis H. So, although most documentation refers to him as Henry, I'll be referring to him as Francis. Entering their home, police soon discovered more of the same. Blood on the walls, all three of the Waynes dead, likewise killed by an axe. The condition of the bodies was a cause for debate. Some say they were covered like like those of the Burnhams. Others said that they were nearly naked and lying out in the open and unconcealed. It soon transpired that Blanche Wayne had borrowed a large wood axe from Mrs. J.R. Evans, another neighborhood woman. Mrs. Evans went over to the Waynes on Monday the 18th to retrieve the axe, but no one answered when she knocked at the door. The axe was leaning against the back porch, and she took it. It was hers, after all. She noticed that it was covered in bloodstains, but incredibly she thought nothing of it, thinking that Mrs. Wayne had used it to kill chickens or something. When police retrieved the axe from Mrs. Evans, they found smudges of ink on the handle, indicating that it was, in all likelihood, the murder weapon, and that the Burnhams had been killed first. Francis Wayne was another victim of tuberculosis who moved to Colorado Springs for treatment at the Modern Woodman Sanatorium, the workplace of Arthur Burnham. He met Burnham at the hospital, and he had told Wayne that there were some vacant homes surrounding his. Wayne ran at the neighboring home. The two families didn't seem to have been especially close, but were acquainted at least as much as neighbors typically are. Lula May often played with the Burnham children. The Wayne family lived in Colorado Springs only about a month when they were murdered. Even less is known of the Wayne crime scene than the Burnham scene, save that the fingerprints were save that fingerprints were taken from the chimneys of oil lamps in the home. Whether it meant that chimneys were checked for fingerprints or that fingerprints were actually retrieved, I'm not certain. This has an obvious implication as well in light of crimes that follow. Police were skeptical of Burnham from the start, maintaining that his reactions to the sights of the bodies weren't quite right. They also found spots resembling dried blood on his shoes and clothing, but as he had tuberculosis a disease which causes one to cough up blood, this perhaps isn't really damning evidence. It was determined that he had left his job in the kitchen of the modern woodman's sanatorium at about 7 p.m. and gone to his wife's house. From the beginning, he was adamant that he had no involvement in the killings, a statement supported by the sanatorium's statement that, though they could not swear to his movements after leaving, several other patients at the hospital were certain that Burnham was there afterwards. He said, quote, It must have been the work of some enemy of my wife's. I have nothing to do with it, and I have no enemies myself who would have done it. He further stated that the police should take an interest in a fellow named Tony Donatel. Donatel was a 40-year-old, described as a half-wit, who had courted May Hill before she married Arthur Burnham, but who still maintained a friendship with his wife. Speaking of Mrs. Burnham and Donatelle's relationship, Nettie Ruth said she ought not have married Burnham. Burnham claimed that quote, when he returned home unexpectedly on Sunday, he found Donatel in the house with his wife. He said that he had known Donatel for several years, and when he found him with Mrs. Burnham, the latter was being caressed by Donatel. Donatel, Burnham said, tried to explain his action by saying that Mrs. Burnham had hurt herself on a barbed wire fence, and he was trying to relieve the pain. Donatel had previously come under scrutiny in 1910, and he was, quote, examined as to his sanity, but was not committed to an asylum. He had a habit of washing the front of his house, too, it is said, wash away marks made by witches. Donatel was brought into custody, and his fingerprints compared against those on an axe handle, by a Bertolone expert brought in from Denver. I should here note that at this time, fingerprints were still not a widely used type of evidence, although the use of them had resulted in a few convictions in Europe. A Bertolone expert is a reference to someone versed in the techniques used by French detective Alphonse Bertolone, who was one of the scientists who pioneered the use of them. The newspapers seemed pretty biased against Arthur Burnham, even after Donatel entered the picture. The Elkmont Mountain pilot said, But when the officers investigating the hideous sextuple murders are asked to believe that Donatel committed them all for the sake of an eight-year-old vengeance, they simply declined to believe it. Besides, they pertinently asked, Why would Donatel kill the whole family of Francis Wayne because he loved Mrs. Burnham? The arrest of Donatel is laughed at, and the finger of suspicion, almost the finger of direct accusation, points at present only toward Arthur J. Burnham himself. This is accentuated by new evidence unearthed, and which is being carefully investigated by the officers charged with running down the criminal. Suspicion about Donatel, however, only grew as a shirt and a pair of trousers were found in a shed near his house, apparently blood-stained, but what were partially, partially cleaned. A necktie found in the shed looked to have ink stains on it. Others, however, felt that the suspicion of Burnham was ludicrous. He was defended by Emma Hill, May's mother, and J.W. Hartwig, a cousin from Detroit, thought that, quote, Burnham's frail strength, sapped by tuberculosis and bronchial troubles, would not have been sufficient to enable him to wield an axe with sufficient force to cause injuries such as disfigured the six victims. I'm not certain what the new evidence referred to by the newspaper above was, but whatever it was, it must not have been convincing, since Burnham was formally released soon after, and Donatel shortly after that. Other arrests were made. John M. Merritt, Anna Merritt's brother, was arrested for questioning after he proved to be reticent in answering questions about the crime. On the other hand, J.R. Evans, whose acts had been the one loaned to the Waynes that had been used in the murder, was arrested for being far too garrulous about the subject. As far as I know, nothing ever came of either of these arrests. The coroner's report, which was issued by Dr. E. L. McKinney, stated that of all of the victims, May Burnham had received the worst wounds, followed by Francis Wayne. It appeared that the Wayne murders were committed first, which kind of uh, contradicts the evidence from the acts, but... Another lead which petered out was that Francis Wayne had been murdered over gambling debts, He was known to be a gambler, and he had been seen arguing with a man in the days before the murder. Two girls came forward and said they heard a man named Harry telling a companion, yes, we killed him, in regards to Wayne. There were a few other leads. A man riding a bicycle out of the neighborhood at around 1 1 a.m. seen by a milkman, and a miner named W.C. Marshall also saw a stranger loitering around the Burnham house. He said the man had a mustache and hat and was of medium height. A view hole was also discovered in one of the vacant homes nearby that allowed a sight line to both the Wayne and Burnham homes. And a second bloody axe was found near another vacant house. The next murder which took place in Monmouth, Illinois, just under two weeks after the massacre in Colorado Springs, really isn't well documented at all, even in the local press. On Sunday, October 1st, parishioners at the First Presbyterian Church arrived for church services and were surprised to find the doors to the church locked. The church caretaker, William E. Dawson, normally unlocked the church and prepared the sanctuary for service. Two of the church deacons C.C. McClung and Luther Price went round to Dawson's home to either get a key or berate him for neglecting his duties the night before, depending on the account one reads. The blinds on all the windows were drawn, similarly to those in Colorado Springs. When they knocked at the front door of the home at the corner of East 9th and South 1st streets and received no answer, they went to the back of the home and knocked at the door there. This they found to be unlocked. Not seeing anyone within, they set out through the house to find the caretaker. In one of the bedrooms, they found the bodies of William and Charity Dawson, and in another room connected to that one lay the body of 13-year-old Georgia Dawson. Two other daughters who lived in Monmouth, Maud and Claribel, were luckily not in the home at the time. All three family members appeared to have been struck in the head with considerable force, and each was wrapped in bedclothes. It was noted that $40 was in Dawson's pockets, suggesting that whatever the motive may have been, it was not simple robbery. There was an initial rumor that Georgia had been raped, but such proved not to have been the case. One has to wonder, though, if, again, similarly to the previous incident, there was some sort of evidence of the killers having been a pervert present. It was said that Georgia was found in her bed, shoved down off the pillow, and with one hand raised above her head, as though she had attempted to pull the covers over her head when she saw harm coming. The neighborhood in which the Dawson home was located was only two blocks south of the tracks of the Minneapolis and St. Louis Railroad. The area was predominantly a black neighborhood, and the Dawsons were one of the few white families resident in the district, so, of course... The initial assumption was that the murders were committed by a black man, although some also expressed that they were suspicious of previous associates of James Dawson, who had previously done time in prison for horse thievery. He had received a lesson sentence after he turned evidence on some colleagues, and it was theorized that these colleagues may have committed or coordinated the murders. Bloodhounds brought to the Dawson home to aid an in investigation of the crime led police across town to the banks of a pond near the southbound tracks of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. Here, police found a section of lead pipe, covered in what appeared to be blood and hair. According to reports, this was eventually determined to have indeed been human. A flashlight was found in the backyard of the Dawson home, near the fence which likely would have been in the killer's path of escape. What exactly the flashlight looked like isn't clear. Neither is the exact message that was engraved on it. Some say it was lovely Colorado Springs. Others say it was a place and date, Colorado Springs, September 4th. A commenter on the Getting the Axe blog, who was looking, into, looking through the Colorado Springs newspapers for September 4th, which was about two weeks before the Burnham Wayne murders, found a reference to a large Labor Day celebration and theorized that this could have been a souvenir from that event. The September 4th celebrations, interestingly, were partly funded by the modern woodman, the same organization who funded the hospital where the husbands of both families were being treated. But the flashlight serves as a convenient segue into the next phase of the Dawson story. The murder case lay dormant for several years, until four years later, a convict named John O. Knight who was incarcerated at that time in Joliet for burglary, came to police and intimated that he and a man named Lovey Mitchell had committed the murders of the Dawsons. Mitchell was the mastermind of the plot. And obviously, people seized on the message on the flashlight and said it was Lovey Colorado Springs, and therefore it was Mitchell's flashlight. Mitchell was found living in St. Louis, Missouri, under another name. The 47-year-old had been living in Monmouth, employed as a dog catcher, in 1911. As of March 21, 1915, he had been brought from St. Louis to the prison at Galesburg. A prominent Monmouth attorney involved in the questioning of night, John Hanley, said that, "...there is little doubt but that we are on the right trail. I believe that within the next 24 hours, we'll have statements from the accused persons which will clear away the most hazy details. It is impossible to give away any of our evidence at this time, and we did not intend that the story should get out so soon. Chief Morrison unknowingly tipped the whole affair to the Associated Press reporter in St. Louis after the arrest was made, and the story went broadcast. Chief Morrison himself elaborated on the arrest someone. Dawson his wife and daughter, were murdered by three Negroes, two men and a woman. Revenge for attentions which the Negroes state at Dawson had shown to their relatives was the alleged motive for the crime. The Negro woman in the case I will arrest in a few days, perhaps in a few hours, after my return to Monmouth. The third man is in the penitentiary at Joliet. Evidence against the trio is complete. I do not believe these three Negroes are connected with any of the other axe murders which occurred in different parts of the country. But other residents of Monmouth who had known Lobby Mitchell were less confident of his guilt. He seems to have been a somewhat reserved man and had apparently made few friends while he was living in the city. But those people who did know him scoffed at the idea of him being responsible. What was seen as a mitigating circumstance his having sold most of his belongings and left Monmouth shortly after the Dawson murder was attributed to troubles with his, ru- with his wife rather than any wrongdoing. He seems also to have been a man not possessed of an overabundance of intelligence. If he did do this, acquaintances insisted, he was likely manipulated into it by Knight rather than vice versa, as Knight was insinuating. The evidence must not have been nearly so convincing as Chief Morrison implied, however, since Mitchell was released on May 24th after a grand jury dismissed his case, citing a lack of evidence. Mitchell said upon being released, when asked where he was going to go, Back to St. Louis, where they got me, and back to work on the construction gang where I was employed when arrested. I got 18 months' work there, and if they want me again, they'll know where to look for me. Well it turns out they did want Mitchell again. In January 1918, he and Knight were both placed on trial again for the Dawson murders. I'm not sure what precipitated his having been retried, although a third man named Tom Lewis was on trial as well. Lewis also was implicated in the Dawson murders, although he was charged with only two counts of murder, whereas Mitchell and Knight were both charged with three counts. The deliberation began with attorneys charging that Knight, in particular, was seen on the porch of the Dawson's home, and he had also asked Cornelius Bogus earlier that afternoon to take place in a job. Knight claimed that he had been at work on the Minneapolis and St. Louis Railroad Depot on the night of the murders and could not have committed them, a statement which, by the way, completely contradicts his testimony from three years before, which claimed he was present when the murders were committed. The trial was still going in September of that year, and on September 23rd, Mitchell's case was dismissed by Judge Robert J. Greer, due, once again, to lack of evidence. However, Knight himself, still in prison on the burglary charge, ended up having quite a few years added to his sentence. On the night of October 15, 1911, Morris Merritt, the town marshal of Ellsworth, Kansas, sitting up at l- late at night reading a newspaper, reported having heard some kind of scratching sound at his window. But after a moment, the noise stopped and he resumed his reading. In the morning, he found that the screen had been removed from one of the rear windows. The screen was propped against the wall, and it seemed that an effort had been made to pry the window itself open. It was two weeks since the three Dawsons had been extinguished in Illinois. The next morning, Laurie Snook found the dog of some friends of hers, the showman's, in her yard. After greeting the dog, she told it to go back home. But that afternoon, the dog returned. In concern, she called the showman's on the phone to let them know their dog was there. She received no answer. Nonplussed, she went about her day. But becoming more and more concerned, she called the garage where Will Showman worked and found out that, no, Will hadn't shown up for work that day. Fearing something had happened, Mrs. Snook went over to the Showman's cabin on the outskirts of the city. Her daughter went with her. This was at approximately 5 p.m. When Morris Merritt arrived on the scene later, he found a familiar state of affairs. One of the window screens had been removed and the window pried open. The blinds were all drawn. A back door was left open, and the Snooks entered the home. By the dim light filtering into the tiny cabin from the open door, they saw all five of the showmans, Will showman, his wife Pauline, and his three children, six-year-old Lester, four-year-old Fern, and one-year-old Fenton, dead. They had all had their heads smashed with an axe, which was left in the house behind a door. The dead were all in the back room on two beds, Will, Pauline, and Fenton on one, Lester and Fern on another. At least the bodies of Will, Pauline, and baby Fenton were covered, but I could find no confirmation as to whether the bodies of Lester and Fern were as well. Mrs. Snook ran from the house and immediately phoned Will's brother John, who called the police. Investigation revealed a few interesting clues. An oil lamp sand's chimney was found on the floor at the foot of one of the beds, still lit. The glass chimney of the lamp was stashed beneath a table in the kitchen. A bucket of bloody water was in the house, and here the killer had apparently, like in the Colorado Springs case, washed his hands. Bizarrely, and rather unnecessarily, he had apparently washed the axe used to commit the murders as well. The telephone on the wall of the room where the showman's bodies were found was covered with a skirt belonging to Pauline. Furthermore, Pauline's body had been posed in some manner which, presumably, decorum prohibited the newspapers from disclosing. The axe used had a chipped blade, and this was determined to have belonged to a neighbor named Bill Miller, who said that the axe had been embedded in a tree stump in his yard. Most interestingly, When the police got to the home, the door was locked again, and the dog that had been at Mrs. Smook's was inside lying on the floor sleeping. Had the killer been watching the house the entire time Mrs. Smook was there, and when she left for John Showman's, re-emerged, and locked the formerly unlocked door? The cabin sat on a small rise overlooking the train tracks, only two doors up the street from Merritt's. Had he been an intended victim, and the killer was scared off, noticing that someone was awake in the house? Incredulity was expressed that the killer could gain access to a house with a dog. Certainly no dog had been present in any of the, either of the two preceding cases, or any of the subsequent ones. It was speculated that the killer was someone familiar with a dog, but it's just as likely to me that the dog wasn't that great of a watchdog. As any dog owner knows, not, not all of them are attentive. On the 17th, the first full day of investigation, bloodhounds were brought in from Abilene. Three separate times they led investigators from the cabin to a railroad junction a short distance away. A blood-stained shirt had been also been found in a room at the Baker Hotel. The room had been occupied for a few hours by a stranger, who soon after vanished. He was found on October 20th, and his identity revealed as John Smitherton. But when picked up in nearby Canopolis, he was completely drunk. So drunk that police couldn't question him immediately. They had to give him a night in the lockup before he could speak to them. When questioned, he claimed that he found a bundle of clothes, took it with him to the hotel, and used the shirt to wipe his nose when he got a nosebleed. An unlikely story, but one that may very well be true, since Mrs. Smitherton later confirmed that, indeed, when her husband drank, he got nosebleeds. On the 17th, also, police were put on the trail of Charles Marzik, a Czech. Marzik was the ex-husband of Pauline Showman's sister, Minnie. He had avoided a forgery charge in 1903, but wasn't so lucky a few years later when he was imprisoned in January 1906 for thievery. While Marzik was in jail, many divorced him and married James Vopat. Ira Lloyd, who had been Marzik's defense attorney in 1906, felt that the murders were the doing of his former client. I believe Marzik will remain in the neighborhood until he completes his vengeance. After his sentence, he told me that when he was released, he would come back and kill the people who were responsible for his conviction and also their children. I will put them all in hell, he said. Mr. and Mrs. Showman, it was said, had testified against Marzik, as had Morris Merritt. The former Mrs. Marzik also feared his wrath, as did her current husband, James Vopat, and their two children. Mr. and Mrs. John Katke, Pauline Showman's parents, and their three remaining children, also were in fear of Marzik. Mrs. Vopat said that her ex-husband had been convicted of forgery in Colorado Springs, and she found it, quote, not improbable that he had been in Monmouth lately. Marzik was found in April 1912, living in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada. He was extradited and brought back to Ellsworth. With most of the town convinced of his guilt, police posted extra guards of the jail and removed him to the courthouse secretly so as to avoid a lynching, which at this point was a very real possibility. However, upon examination, the case against Marzik fell apart. His alibi, that he was in Canada at the time of the murders, was confirmed. Several of Mrs. Vopat's statements were, were proven false. Charles had never been in Colorado Springs, much less convicted there, although he had, admittedly, lived in Denver for a time. He had not been in Monmouth, And another of her statements, that he had served in the Philippines and had been discharged from the Army, was also false. Indeed, no confirmation that Marzik had ever even been in the Army could be found. He was released to Canada after a preliminary hearing. In June 1912, a police informant named Mickey Flynn from Wichita provided clues intimating that a local man named W.R. Lockhead was in possession of some papers belonging to the Ellsworths that he had stashed in a barn in the city. However, this proved untrue under questioning, and in fact, while Lockhead was being interrogated, Flynn himself was brought into the police station, arrested for having broken into an undertaker's and stolen a piece of silver. It was nearly six months before the fiendish Slayer reappeared, still in Kansas. Rollin and Anna Hudson married in 1910. Their marriage was not necessarily a happy one. Rollin had health problems resulting from inhaling metal dust in his previous work in an automobile factory. While in Ohio, the Hudsons had been separated for a time. Rollin went west to Paola, Kansas. Rollin began to do railroad work and here he met George Coe. He told him that on three occasions he had caught Anna with another man. But after a while, he and Anna patched things up and she followed him west. They moved in with Coe and his wife Myrtle, and a short time later they rented a house across the street at 710 West Way Street. Other than the house in Villisca, the Hudson's cottage is the only structure still standing. Well, part of it, anyway. But the rekindled marriage did not last, and soon Rowan left his wife again. This time it was because she had received a letter from one of her former lovers, presumably Roy Adams, who most of their fights were about. The next day, Rowan and Anna were seen arguing at the cemetery. He left town for a few days, and soon George Coe reported seeing both he and Anna at the cottage once more. So it was with them. A man with a pig face and wearing a blue suit, appeared in Paola in June 1912, asking about Rowan and Anna, and claiming to be an old friend from Ohio. On the 5th, the man appeared at the Hudson's home, and was welcomed in. It's unclear whether he was ever seen leaving. Some say he did, around 11pm, others that they never noticed the man leaving. One thing is clear, however, he was not Roy Adams. Adams was in Canton, Ohio at the time. Very early on the morning of June 6th, a Mrs. Longmire, wife of a co-worker of Rollins, heard the crash of glass and emerged into a hallway just in time to see a man running through her kitchen and through the door. She got there a moment later, but she couldn't see the man. Turning back in, she saw broken glass all over the floor. The sound she had heard had been the glass chimney of an oil lamp. The lamp itself sat on the floor. A window was pried open, and a woman's nightgown that she couldn't identify was lying on the floor as well. From the kitchen, she ran into her daughter's room. Eight-year-old Sadie Longmire was in the corner of her bedroom. She said that a man had been prowling through the house, and she had seen him crouching near her mother's bed. On the morning of the 6th as well, Rowan didn't appear for work. Some neighbors headed over to make sure they were all right, having already heard of the Longmire breaking. The front door was unlocked, and the cautious neighbors pushed it open and peered in. Nothing stirred. At literally just that moment, the carriage of the city marshal, Herman Hintz, was coming down the street. The neighbors flagged him down, and Hintz made his way into the home. There he found, quote, a ghastly sight, Turning down a coverlet and sheet that covered their heads, they found Mr. and Mrs. Hudson dead. Mr. Hudson was lying on his right side, with the left side of his head and face crushed. He was evidently murdered while he slept, without having made a struggle. Mrs. Hudson was apparently awakened when her husband was killed, and raised her head when she was struck of the back of the head and of her face, with some partially sharp instrument an inch or an inch and a half wide. A wooden crate sat next to the bed, and on it was, by now you've guessed it, a chimneyless oil lamp. And yes, a rear window was pried open. Dishes for three people were on the table. Also on the table sat a box of letters and a photo album. The nightgown, found in the Longmire's kitchen, was assumed, but as far as I know not absolutely confirmed, to have been Mrs. Hudson's. A woman who lived between the Hudsons and the Longmire's claimed that shortly after midnight, a man passed her window from the direction of the Hudsons. This was quite likely the individual who attempted to break into the Longmire residence, and when paired with the statements by Myrtle Co. that she had heard a scream coming from the Hudson house at midnight, it's very likely it was also the murderer. Were the Longmire's more intended victims? Due to the recorded problems in the marriage, it was assumed that the killer was some lover, either current or former, of Anna Hudson's. The news coverage of the event largely focused on this angle, and thus any search for the killer, in my opinion, was doomed practically from the start, because the killer was likely completely unknown to the Hudsons. Only three days later, on June 9th, 1912, the most famous murder of the series took place just over 160 miles, almost due north from Paola, in Villisca, Iowa. As I stated earlier, I won't go into the Villisca events here. Suffice to say, the details of the crime are more or less consistent with the above. Even though this will be by far the most famous event I've covered, I felt I needed to cover it. I didn't think think I could really address these lesser-known crimes without discussing that better-known one. (laughs) And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, Leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew signing off.